Hello, welcome to the second GDS podcast. I'm Sarah Stewart, Senior Writer at the Government Digital Service. Today I'll be joined in conversational paradise with Terence Eden. Terence is known variously as a tech enthusiast, as a digital troublemaker, as the man who hacked his own vacuum cleaner to play the Star Wars theme tune. But in a professional capacity, he is the Open Standards Lead at the Government Digital Service. Terence, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So how do you explain what you do? What I tend to say in a very reduced vocabulary is we have computers, government has computers, and those computers need to talk to each other. But sometimes those computers don't speak the same language. It's my job to say, hey, can we agree on a common language here? And then when we, we, when we can, those computers speak to each other. And, and it's kind of as simple as that. If we publish a document and it's in a, a format that you don't understand, that's a barrier to entry for you. you. You can't get access to the data or the information you need. Uh, if we publish it in such a way that it's only available on one manufacturer's type of smartphone, that's a barrier. We can't do that. So it's my job to say, no, let's make it available to, to everyone in a, in a common language. I've got a big sticker on my laptop which says, make things open, it makes things better. And that applies to a whole variety of things. And there are people here working on open data and open source and open government. But my part of the mission is to say that when government produces documents or data, everyone should be able to read them. It, it's unacceptable that we say, okay, if you want to interact with government, you need to pay this company this money for this software, which only works on that platform. That's that's completely antithetical to everything we're trying to do. So my mission, our team's mission, is to go around government saying there's a better way of doing things, there's a more open way of doing things, and we can help you with that. That sounds completely straightforward. You'd think, wouldn't you? And most of the time it is. When when you tell people and you say, we, we can't, you know, if you publish it like this, then only people with that computer can read it. It's like, you know, a light goes off. Do you go out to departments kind of proactively or do they come to you? It's both. So I, I spent last week talking to uh, the DWP and the Government Statistical Service and uh, I'm speaking, I think, this week to uh, a couple of different uh, departments and ministries. So we, we go out, we, we chat to them, but quite often they come to us and say, hey, users have complained uh, about this or hang on, we think we need to do something better. What should we do? And we offer a just a, a wide range of advice. Government is huge and technology changes all the time. So how do you make sure that you're progressing in the right direction, that you're you know, achieving what needs to be achieved and that your work is done? I mean, is it even possible to say that your work is done? Wow, it's, it's a slight Sisyphean task, I think, because there's always gonna be a new department coming online which doesn't get it or someone who's come in or you know, a bit of work which only gets published every five years and the process is never updated. So it, it's a rolling task. We monitor everything that government publishes and my team, you know, when we see a department which only publishes something in a proprietary format, we drop them an email and say, hey, look, here are the rules, this is what you need to do, can you fix it? Most of the time they do. Um, and we've seen, we, we've published some statistics, we're seeing a steady rise in the number of open format documents which are being published so that's great so we're, we're on our way with the mission uh, when will we know if we've succeeded well i i guess when they make me redundant <laughs> it's um it, it's always going to be 
a mission. You can't expect everyone to keep on top of every change in technology and the best practice all the time. So there is always going to be a need for bits of GDS to go out and say, ah, you know what, this is best practice, this is the right way to do it, and we can help you uh, get there and make things more open. So we need to do, I think in GDS and across government, a better job of understanding what our users want, mm -hmm. what they need, I should say, and also explaining that user need back to the rest of government. But what's your focus at the moment? We have a problem with PDFs. I don't think that's any surprise. It's I've published the stats, but you know there are some critical government forms which are being downloaded millions of times per year, which could be better served being online forms. You know, when someone has to print, download, print out a form, fill it in by hand, then post it back for someone else to open it up, scan it, or type it in. It's the worst. It's the worst. I mean, it's it's rubbish. It's a rubbish user experience, and it's expensive, and it's not very efficient, and it means you're waiting weeks to get an answer. Whereas, if you can just go on your phone and type in, you know, your name and address and all the other bits mm -hmm. that they want, and hit go, and then get either an instant or a rapid decision. Mm -hmm. That's, that just transforms a relationship between the, the citizen and the state, as we say. So a, a large part of the next six months is going to be finding those... It's not, it's not low-hanging fruit, but it's just those big, horrible things which just no-one has got round to, to tackling yet. And, and some of them, it, there's good reasons and there's whole business processes behind. But we need to be pushing and saying, look, in 2018... This isn't good enough. This isn't the way that we can behave anymore. Mm -hmm. um, some, a, a lot of what I do is going around to departments and doing presentations and talking to people individually and in groups. I see that continuing. We also work a lot with SDOs, standard development organisations. Mm -hmm. So I'm uh, on a committee for the British Standards Institute and I work with Worldwide Web Consortium. And so we're making sure that the government's view is represented. So we, we don't ever want to produce a standard which is a government standard and it's the government government's own standard. It's the only one uh, and we're the only people who use it because no no one wants to deal with that. Mm -hmm. We want to have we want to be using internationally accepted standards. So if you're an SME, if you're a small medium business and you want to pitch for some work for government, you don't need to go and buy a huge expensive standard or you don't need to do a piece of work just for us your, your work can it can be applicable everywhere so that said it's important for us to be on these standards development organizations so we can say actually our user needs are going to be slightly different from you know a, a FTSE 100 company or from a charity or from someone else so we can just shape those standards so they're slightly more applicable for us. Someone listening might ask why can't government use, say, something like Google Forms instead of a PDF? Why can't government just do this? In some ways, they can. Mm -hmm. um, with that particular example, we need to understand people's concerns about privacy. Mm -hmm. So if we were using a third-party form supplier, for example, do you want, you know, if, if you're filling in a form which says how many kids you've got and how many have died and, you know, your health issues and all that, do you want that going to a third party to be processed? Some people will be comfortable with it. Some people will rightly be uncomfortable with it. So we need to make sure that any solution that we pick actually addresses users' very real concerns. Mm -hmm. There's several work, pieces of work around government trying to get forms right. And 
part of the problem is that each department has their own set of users with their own set of user needs. Mm -hmm. So if you are a, uh, I don't know, if you're a farmer applying for a, a farm payment, you have very different needs to if you are a single mother applying for a child benefit to if you are um, a professional accountant trying to submit something to HMRC. So just saying we're going to have one standardised way of sending data to the government might actually not work. We have to realise that users all have different needs. So it's tricky and there are ways that we are helping with it, but I think that's going to be a piece of work which is going to continue rumbling on just because some of these processes are very old-fashioned and they still rely on things being faxed across and being handwritten. Faxed? That can't be right. I you know I can believe lots it. Lots of stuff just goes through via fax because if you've got a computer system built in one department and a computer system built by someone else in another department and they don't speak the same language, well actually the easiest way to do something is to send a photo of that document across. That's the easiest and quickest. And fax is relatively quick, but it comes with all of this baggage and it doesn't always work right. And we see that fax machines are vulnerable to computer viruses and stuff and like this. And the noise. And the noise. But sometimes we have these little stop gaps, which are good enough for the time, mm -hmm. but they never get replaced. So part, part of the work that we've done with the Open Standards board is to make sure that all emergency services use a standard called MATE, multi-agency incident transfer, which basically means you don't you don't need a police department to fax across details to, to an ambulance or to a, a coast guard. Their computers, even if they're made by different people and run different operating systems and programs, they all speak to a common standard. So trying to find where those little um, bugs in the process are mm -hmm. is part of our job and if people want to help out if they know where problems are if they come across to github we're on github.com slash alphagov slash open standards they can raise an issue there and say hey you know there really ought to be an open standard for dot 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 or look this process really doesn't make sense there's this open standard which would save us a lot of time and money can we adopt it it's as simple as raising a github issue with us we do most of the hard work to find out whether it's suitable and we take it through a, a, a slightly convoluted process but it, you know it keeps us um legally in the clear <laughs> and yeah then we can hopefully mandate that uh, across government and start the work on getting people to adopt it so some of the stuff we do is small you know saying that text should be encoded using unicode utf-8 that just basically means that when someone sends you a document with an apostrophe in it it doesn't turn into one of those weird uh, we call it mojibaki where there's you know just weird symbols in place of, oh, the squares yeah the weird squares so <laughs> that is a really boring low level standard <laughs> but it just makes everything easy all mm -hmm. the way up to something like mate or um international aid transparency initiative which allows you to see where all the foreign aid that we spend and all the all the grants that we make goes and that's hugely important for understanding you know if you're a if you're a taxpayer where your money's going mm -hmm. but if you're in the uh, charity sector or the aid sector understanding how government is using funds to improve lives we don't want information to be locked away in filing cupboards we don't want it so that if you request some information you have to send an foi and then you get um a scan of a fax posted off to you. That's, that's rubbish. We want this information front and centre so that if people want to use it, it's there and that it works 
absolutely everywhere. It doesn't matter which phone you've got, which computer you've got, you should be able to access all of the information that you're entitled to with no intermediaries, no having to pay for extra software. Mm -hmm. it, it should just be there. We, if we make things open, then we make things better. Another area of focus for you is emerging technology. Innovation is a hot topic in government at the moment with the publication of the Tech Innovation in Government Survey, the GovTech Catalyst Fund and the development of an innovation strategy. How do we make sure that government doesn't just grab at the new fashionable tech because it's new and fashionable? The, the author William Gibson has a beautiful quote which is, the future is already here, it's just not very evenly distributed yet. That's not really the case. The future isn't here. We've got glimpses that if we can build this huge data set, then we will be able to artificial intelligence, the blockchain into the cloud and magic will happen. And yeah, you're right. People just go a little starry eyed over this. What we need in government is people who understand technology at a deep and fundamental level, not people who see what a, a slick sales team is selling, not people who read a report in a newspaper and go, oh, we could do that. You need a fundamental understanding. Do you really think it's possible that every civil servant can understand the fundamentals of emerging technology and digital practice? Yes. Because it, it can seem yeah, quite frightening. It, it, to... Absolutely. We wouldn't accept um, a civil servant who couldn't read or write. We, you know, we can be as inclusive as we like, but we need to set minimum standards for being able to engage with the work that we do. And similarly, we wouldn't accept a civil servant who couldn't type or use a computer in, in a basic way. I think there, there's a lot of nonsense talked about digital natives. What a digital native is, someone whose parents were rich enough to buy them a computer when they were a kid. And that's great, but not everyone is that lucky. But what we can do is say, we're not going to just train you in how to fill in a spreadsheet. We're going to teach you to think about how you would um, build a formula in a spreadsheet, how to build an algorithm. And you can start building up on that. The, we have to be committed to lifelong learning in the civil service. It's not good enough to say, um, okay, this is your job and you're going to do it for the next 25 to 40 years and there will be no change in it whatsoever. That's, that's unrealistic. And I think as part of that, and it's not going to happen overnight, we need to make sure that when someone comes in and says, we're going to use an algorithm, that everyone in the room not only understands that, but is able to critique it and potentially be able to, to write it as well. And I think that's what the Emerging Technology Development Programme is about, is making sure that civil servants can code, making sure that they understand how they would build an AI system, understand what the ethics are, learn about what the reasons for and against using a, a bit of technology like distributed ledgers are, because otherwise we end up with you know, people just buying stuff which isn't suitable. We, ha we have a slight problem in that we don't want to tie ourselves to tech which is going to go out of date quickly. It, it would have been, you know, you, you can imagine a, a GDS in the past saying, let's put all of government onto teletext. And that would be great, but that has a limited shelf life. And we've got a, a, a statement which says that government shouldn't build apps because um, they're really expensive to use and they don't work for everyone. And okay, maybe there are some limited circumstances where we can use them, but by and large, we should be providing on neutral technology platforms like the web. We need to understand exactly what the limitations are when we say Bitcoin, blockchain, the cloud, AI, anything like that. So 
there are new technologies and we do adopt them. Mm-hmm. We can be slow to adopt them. And part of that is, are we chasing fashion or are we chasing utility? And it's very easy to confuse the two. You know, we wouldn't, I think, go for uh, transmitting government documents by Snapchat, for example. You know, how cool would that be? You know, the filters. Brilliant. Yeah. But that, that, it, what's the user need for it? Is it just, we, we want to do something that looks cool? Yes. That's not a user need. The amount um, of times I hear people talking about headsets, as though everybody in the country is going to have a VR headset. Oh, and yeah. Geez. Yeah, we're all going to be jacked into the cyber matrix watching <laughs> VR stuff. Yeah, and maybe VR will take off. Maybe we will, in in a year's time, I'll be the head of VR for, for GDS. How cool a job title would that we'll be? Well, remember me yeah. or look for me in the in the matrix. Yeah, but is, is there a user need for it? Now, for some parts of government, you might say, if you're doing planning decisions, for example, would it be good to strap on a VR headset and take a look around this 3D representation of the town, mm-hmm. you know, after the remodeling or after the bypass has been built, whatever it is. Okay, yeah, you could make an argument for that. Do people want to interact with government in something like Second Life or <laughs> Minecraft or uh, Fortnite or, you know, any of these things which are just sort of coming out? Oh, Maybe. I'd love to see the customizable characters. Yeah, brilliant. Um, so we've got to be ever so slightly careful that this cool shiny tech is going to last because if we make an investment in it that's other people's money that we're spending now you know when i was in the uh, private sector it's shareholders money that you're spending it's not someone else's money that you're spending and you have to have a really good business case and it's all right for us to experiment there's some people in a department for transport are brilliant at this mm-hmm. you know take an idea run it for a few weeks and don't spend, you know, more than a few thousand pounds on it in a few people's time. Can it work? Does it work? If it doesn't work, brilliant. You know, yeah. we've saved money by saying, look, doing it this way is probably not going to work for us. What we don't want to do is go full in and say, we're going to make 3D Angry Birds avatars of all civil servants. <laughs> and then you can play them on your Oculus Rift or something <laughs> like that. It's, it's nonsense. Um, is Sandpit testing something that happens across government? It happens yeah. loads in like the financial industry, but mm. in government, is, does that exist? In part, it does. One of the big problems that I see is people are afraid of failure. And they shouldn't be. If we were to say, you know, we are... It's very easy to run a procurement exercise and say we're going to choose the best. But sometimes what's... The, the necessary thing to do is we are going to ask three or four people to build something, to build a prototype in a few weeks, and we expect two of them to fail. Now, you, you, when you say that and you say, hang on, we're going to spend money and we know that it's going to fail, yeah, but we don't know which one's going to fail. We need to try four or five different approaches, mm-hmm. and rather than wait until we spend a million pounds and there's a public inquiry on it, let's get the failure out of the way as soon as possible. That's really scary for, for people of, you know, of all levels in the civil service, but it's absolutely necessary. We need to experiment. We need to take risks in small self-contained risks mm-hmm. where if it fails, okay, so we spent a bit of money, but not uh, an extortionate amount. We spent a bit of time, but only a few weeks. And what we've come up with is, you know what, doing, that, doing it that way, it just won't work. We've experimented, we failed, but that's going to save us more money in the long term. It's... It's a mindset change and it's it's psychologically difficult to turn to your manager and say, I want to fail at something, please. But it's absolutely necessary. 
So somewhat related to that is kind of learning and development. I know that you were involved in the pilot for the Emerging Technology Development Programme, um, which was run through the GDS Academy. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? So I've already gone on a course to learn R, which is a statistical language. My statistics skills weren't great, if I'm honest. So being able to learn how to use a really powerful tool like that and to start doing some machine learning on the data that we're getting in has been incredibly useful for my job. But I'm also going around talking to other civil servants about things like facial recognition and digital ethics. It's really easy for us to see, oh wow, we, we can do something like face recognition. How, how cool would that be for our department? But we also need to think about, well, what are the problems? What are the dangers? What are the moral, legal and ethical considerations that we have to do? We know, for example, that with a, with a cheap webcam and some open source code, you can do crude gender recognition. So you can say that this face looks 90% male or 80% female. And that might be useful in some circumstances, but it's also particularly scary and difficult and troubling uh, if you get it wrong or if someone doesn't want their uh, born gender revealed or in anything like that. So where we see bright, shiny new technology, oh, we could do something really cool with this. We also need to temper it and say, well, what are the downsides? What are the moral limits to, to what we can do with this tech? You mentioned moral limits, and I would like to talk to you a little bit more about government and ethics, especially as it relates to emerging technology. What is our responsibility? I'm not sure I, I'm not a politician, obviously. I'm, I'm not sure whether it's our place to say for the private sector or for individuals or for open source projects what to do, but we absolutely have a duty to talk to civil servants about what they are responsible for. So we, we have a civil service code and it says that all of us have to act impartially and a whole bunch of other things, but it doesn't, and, and it talks about acting in an ethical fashion but it doesn't necessarily address the code that we create. Now, if you're working in a big department and you've got a big project and we're gonna create some cool machine learning thing to look at data, then you should be doing an ethical review on that and uh, the, the department for what they called data and ethics. Oh, we have the Center for Data C Ethics. Center for Data Ethics, yeah. So if you've got a, a big project that you're working on, you're doing some big data and you're trying to learn something from there, then talking to the Centre for Data Ethics is a good thing and you should absolutely be doing it. But if you just got your laptop one lunchtime and you've downloaded some open source code from GitHub and you're running a machine learning algorithm on a huge data set, you can do that by yourself with no oversight, should you? What are the ethical considerations that you as an individual have to consider? Yeah. Okay. Cast your mind back to July. You were at the National Cyber Security Centre. I was there too. I saw you with a robot. What was all that about? Well, the robots are coming for us. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> um, but what we have to understand is when we say the robots are coming for our jobs, what jobs do we mean? What are the limits of robotics? What can they do? What can't they do? So we built a, a really simple Lego robot, which solves a Rubik's Cube. Um, and you can go online. Um, the, the instructions are there, the source code is there. It took my wife and I an afternoon to build it. And this solves a Rubik's Cube faster than nearly everyone in the building. There's one person in this building who can beat it, so his job is safe. <laughs> but, you know, the, okay, so government doesn't sort Rubik's Cubes 
generally. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not our job. But we do lots of repetitive work with data, which is just rote work. Can we train a robot to do that? How do we deal with edge cases? What are the limits when we start doing robotic process automation? That's what people need to start thinking about now is what value do they bring to a job which couldn't be encoded in an algorithm? And I think that's a challenge for all of us. So just to confirm, the robots are or aren't coming for our jobs, specifically writers? Do you have a, a spell check on your PC? I do. Right, there we go. There, there is a piece of AI which is doing your job. We don't think of that as AI, but there's some really sophisticated technology going in to say, not only have you misspelt that word, because it doesn't match the dictionary, but it, looking at the context, you probably mean this word. Yes. Um, I mean, that's already happened. Do you remember the yeah. Microsoft paperclip? It oh, looks yes. like you're writing a letter. Yeah. Actually, I was having a conversation um, with someone a few months ago about speech writing and how if you have all of the elements of speech writing and a computer program, so kind of the rule of three and repetition and a story that includes a beginning and a middle and an end, you actually don't really need a human to do that. Absolutely. I probably and, shouldn't well, say I, that. Well, I, I, I think what we'll see more is robotic enhancement, mm -hmm. if you like. So, as you say, writing a speech, I mean, maybe having Clippy coming in and saying, you're writing a speech, do you need help Clippy, with that? Clippy, yes. Isn't, maybe that's not what you want, but having something which will gently guide you down the right path, making sure that your spelling and grammar is correct, that the structure is correct, you know, that, that will all be great. Similarly, when you receive a document and your email program has already scanned it and gone, well, that's the address and... Um, this is a person who sent it and things like that. Well, you're just being augmented a bit by a robot, by a bit of artificial intelligence. That's slowly creeping in. I think lots of email programs now offer buttons at the bottom yes. where you can just you read the email and it says you can either reply, yes, that's great, or no, I need more time to think about it. And realistically, that's what you want to say quite a lot of the time. So is... robots are coming for us all now. Well, as long as they don't come for us in... I've seen like five films in my entire life. And there's, is it iRobot with Will Smith? And at first the robots are friendly. And then in the second half, I think the robots tried to kill. This is like when I try to explain Star Wars to you and okay, you actually we, know. We need a podcast of you explaining Star Wars because it is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. It's really complex. Um, let's talk about the past. You used to sell ringtones. What made you want to work here? Working in the private sector is great and working in the public sector is also great. I think people get really hung up about there being a difference and there isn't. I mean I've worked for some of the biggest companies in the UK and they have all the same problems that a large government department has and I've worked for tiny startups and they can be just as agile as GDS is. So there are positives and negatives. I'd spent a long time doing private sector stuff and it was great fun but I saw the work that GDS was doing and thought, I want to be part of that. I want to be pushing the conversation forward. I want to make sure that you know the government, in the, the civil service in the country where I live is doing the right thing. It's really easy being on the outside snarking. And I think we've all done <laughs> it. You know, it's like, even if you're just snarking about the train company or, you know, whoever it is, it's really easy just mm -hmm. to go, oh, they're all useless. <laughs> But it's harder to come in and say, right, I'm going to try and push from the inside. And I don't think I'm going to succeed at everything that I want. And I'm, I'm not coming in with the attitude that I'm going to revolutionise 
government, and I think it would be dangerous if any one civil servant <laughs> could do that. I did try. No. Did you? No. <laughs> but I, I've come in with the attitude that there is a task here that I believe in that I think is important for this country and internationally. And if we can lead the way, then we can help influence other people in other countries to do the right thing. And that that's fantastic. So I've, you know, I've, I've met with government representatives from, from around Europe, from around the world, and they've been consistently impressed with what GDS is doing. Mm -hmm. um, and some of them are going, oh, you've got some open source code. We'll take that, thanks. Or, oh wow, these open standards principles that you've got, that makes complete sense for us. Yeah, we'll take it, we'll shuffle it around to meet our local needs and go off and do it. And that, that's brilliant. This job wasn't my career goal. Mm -hmm. It just so happened that all the work that I'd been doing with standards and with open source and stuff like that, suddenly this job seemed to fit perfectly. So it's, I mean, I've not had a career plan. I've just sort of jumped from thing to thing that I found interesting and has coincided with what I've been doing anyway. So it's, yeah, it's mostly luck. And don't get me wrong, ringtones are fun, but this is actually having a positive impact on people around the world. And that's, that's great. I love it. I'm proud of the team. I'm proud of the work that we've done. I'm proud of the departments who have invited us in, been sceptical and gone, oh no, all right, yeah, we're, we're going to make some changes to that. And, you know, I'm proud of the fact that when we go around to departments, they quite often... <laughs> I had a lovely chat with a department who said, um, and we've done this and we've done that and we've opened this and we've opened that. Um, how are we doing? And, you know, when I said, oh, my goodness, you are just streets ahead of everyone else, they, they just beamed with pride. And that was, that was absolutely lovely. For the uninitiated, can you explain what open standards are and what open source is? So they're two very different things. Open standards means that when you've got two computers that want to communicate, the language that they use is standardised. Everyone can understand it. We actually have a 48-point definition of open standards, which I'm not going to go onto <laughs> here, but basically it's the organisation which creates it. it uh, they create it in an open fashion. That means you can see the process by which it happens and that you can go in and make some changes. They publish it for free. We don't want government departments to be spending thousands of pounds on standards again and again. And that they have wide international adoption. So that, that's what open standards are. It just means that our computers can work with computers around the world for free. Tell me about open source. People have the right to see how decisions are being made. Open source is about, in one sense, is about publishing the code that we use to run bits of the country. So you can see how the gov.uk website is built all the code is there. But when we start saying, okay, this is how a decision is made, this is how systems integrate with each other, we should be publishing that. There's several good reasons for doing this. Firstly, is it increases trust. If you can see, if, you, if you're uh, a user and you can see how this code works, hopefully you will trust it more. So how are we doing in the world stage on open standards? Good, could do better. But I, I always think we can do better. So we're involved with some uh, EU committees around the world, and we are one of the few governments which are on the W3C, the World Wide Web Consortium's advisory committee. And yeah, we, we are going out, we are leading the way in certain areas, but what we're seeing, I think this is fascinating, is some countries like leapfrogging us. So when I worked for the mobile phone industry, 
one of the problems with the UK was we had this um, huge investment in 2G networks and then another huge investment in 3G networks. And you would find countries in Africa which never had even landlines before going, oh, well, we'll just build a, a 3G network. And they don't have any of that legacy investment. Mm -hmm. So they were able to leapfrog us in terms of speed and connectivity and price. And GDS has been going for, is it like six years now? Uh, seven. Six, I think seven we're approaching years? our seventh. Yeah. And so naturally, we've got a, a lot of legacy stuff that we've built up, and that means some processes which are a bit slow, and that's that's fine. But then you see other countries who've skipped to the end. They say, okay, so we've seen all the mistakes GDS have made. We've seen what they've come out with at the end. We'll just take that end piece and, and run with it. Brilliant. That, that's great. So I think we have paved the way for lots of people, um, but there's always more we can do. So internationally, who do you think is doing good work? Which governments are piquing your interest? Um, I've got to give a shout out to New Zealand. I think they're doing some amazing things, um, making their government more open, more transparent, uh, getting on board the open source and the open standards train. And that's partly, you know, uh, I mean, that, that's entirely a testament to the people who work in uh, New Zealand's public service. They, they absolutely get it. And we're seeing them sort of spread out around. So I, I know that some of them have gone off to Australia, which is great. We've got some uh, GDS uh, alumna off in Canada, and now they are doing brilliant stuff. And one of the lovely things about Canada is lots of their digital strategy is on GitHub. So you can just go along and say, oh, hang on, I, mm, you, you could do something better there, or even as simple as there's a spelling mistake there and fix it. And I think that's wonderful for, for openness. You're a bug hunter yourself, aren't you? I am, yes. And you're in Google's Hall of Fame. Uh, my wife and I are, oh, yes. Both of yeah, you. no, it, well, it was my wife who discovered the bug and then I uh, I reported it, so we're, we're sort of joint recipients, I think. What was the bug? Um, so Google Calendar, if, if you typed up a reminder to yourself which said um, email boss at work.com about pay rise, uh, if you put that in like the subject line, it would automatically copy it to uh, your boss's calendar that's a big bug isn't yeah it? <laughs> yeah so it, it, it basically i mean yeah that, that's that's what happened um so we reported it and they fixed it and but finding bugs is is good fun and if people find bugs in government they should tell us because we'll fix them so what does your vision of a future government look like a successful future government look like the government of the future i hope will be more open and it will be more collaborative and I don't want GDS to be a single government department. I want GDS to be everywhere. I want everyone to know what good looks like and how to code in the open. I think the government of the future will have fewer barriers. Someone asked me the other day what department I was in. And I said, GDS. And they went, no, 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 which subdivision of GDS? And I haven't got a clue. I just work for GDS. <laughs> and really, I work for Cabinet Office. And if I'm completely honest, I work for the civil service. If someone from DWP says, I need some help with something, I'm going to go and help them. Of course I will. And if someone you know, from anywhere in the country in the civil service says, oh, we need some help with this, why wouldn't I go and help them? I think we need to break down these barriers. And if you know the best team at content design happens to be in DEFRA or wherever, great, we should be learning from them. They should be teaching us. So I would love it if not only if the government of the future was more open and more transparent and more open source and use more open standards, but that the civil service was really just one civil service. It wasn't just 
based in London and that we can, it's not based in London now, but that we felt free to move more or less anywhere within it and give people the help and the advice and the support that they need and learn from anyone in any department because we're not, we are not DEFRA and DWP and Department for Health and anything else. We, we're not, we, we are one team, one team gov. It's really interesting that you said that. We're actually recording a podcast with Kit Collingwood from One Team Gov and DWP fame in December. Okay, final question. You've hacked your vacuum, your car's on Twitter, your house turns off when you leave it. What's next? The next thing that I'm interested in is biohacking. So I've got some fake nails, yeah. um, you know, just like fashion nails. Uh, and they've got a small bit of computer circuitry in, which is kind of like your Oyster card. It's an NFC chip. Um, and they glow when I put them around uh, electromagnetic fields. So if I'm, you know, on the tube and I put my hand against an Oyster card reader, my, my fingertips glow. And you can also put data on there so I can transfer data from my fingertips. And that's kind of silly, but I'm fascinated by how we can enhance people. What are the things that we can put on us and in us? which will make us better. That's what I'm interested in. Terence, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. That brings us to the end of this month's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and that you'll listen again next month when we talk to another interesting person about interesting things. Until then, farewell. Farewell.